once you commit to a television format, you're a TV movie. You, you, you certainly, if, if it's a good show, deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar. I don't believe that films that are just get give, are given token qualifications in a couple of theaters for less than a week should, be, should qualify for, for the Academy Award nomination. One of the more fascinating, and gotta admit more intelligent, debates to emerge out of Hollywood in the last few years is the whole thing about whether or not movies from streaming services such as Netflix and Amazon Prime are worthy of Oscar consideration, even after a what some call token theatrical run. Believe it or not, though, this isn't a new story. It's been going on since the 1970s, with every few years a new film-slash-TV entity causing the debate to resurface and rule to be changed, only to be changed back or altered slightly when another film-TV entity comes along which some feel doesn't fit the criteria early stated, or a new film-TV entity comes along which adheres to the rules, but the way in which movie and TV is distributed changes because of new technologies. And the argument begins anew while trying to factor in the last decade or two of changes in the way in which films are viewed. My podcast compadre, Jim Delaney of TheLunchMovie.com and I delve into this quandary today with a few angles you may not have considered before in this mini-pod we call Shootin' It. We also take a look at Marvel's new Captain Marvel and Jordan Peele's popular thriller Us. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to an all-new edition of The Movie Sneak. when more content than ever is available at the click of a button, A-list movie makers like Waron and the Coen brothers are linking up with streaming hubs to bring their art to the masses. Oscar-nominated filmmaker Ava DuVernay tweeted, One of the things I value about Netflix is that it distributes black work far and wide, adding I've had just one film distributed wide internationally. Not Selma, not Wrinkle, it was 13th by Netflix. That matters. Netflix, for its part, fired back on Twitter earlier this week, tweeting, quote, We love cinema. Here are some things we also love. Access for people who can't always afford or live in towns without theaters. Letting everyone everywhere enjoy releases at the same time. Giving filmmakers more ways to share art. These things are not mutually exclusive. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Movie Sneak. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney from TheLunchMovie.com. And today we're instituting something a little different and hopefully a little fun. In the past, we've occasionally had what we called uh, mini-pods, where one or the other of us, or both, would sometimes delve quickly into an uh, up-to-the-minute news today topic, be it a film review or whatever. And we'd like to make that a little more commonplace with uh, a series of mini-pods we call Shootin' It. (laughs) As in, you know what? (laughs) Uh, Essentially, uh, there are times that Jim and I have just gotten into phone conversations, and we've actually said, oh man, this will make a great uh, podcast show. We should should have been recording this. (laughs) And so that's basically what we're doing. So, uh, jumping right into it, uh, first we're going to start off with a review of Jordan Peele's Us. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? You know how sometimes things line up? Yeah. You know, like coincidences. Since we've been here, they've been happening more and more. I think, I feel like it means like she's getting closer. Who? The mirror girl? You don't believe me. I, 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 I do. I do. 
can't believe you kept all this inside for so long. Short answer, the, the, the thing that usually springs to our mind, can you dig it or can you not? I dug this immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, I had high expectations, and it didn't meet them all, but it went in a direction that I didn't foresee coming, so in a way I guess it met them even more so. Hmm, um, nice. You know, and it's, it's, it's the naysayers that I hear about this thing so far are mostly focused on comparing it to uh, Get Out. Yeah, yeah. Which to me is kind of irrelevant. I mean, yes. it's interesting to bear in mind, but I mean, this is one movie. It stands on its own or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me, it stands incredibly well. Um, and it's the kind of movie that I think you and I could be talking about in another 10 or 20 years, still circling back and still s- deciphering what it means. I agree. And that's, that's part of what I, I mean. We don't get an awful lot of movies like that. Um, and I, that's just what I love most about this thing is that it's causing arguments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is always a good thing for a genre movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have my own, my own uh, personal suspicion about what makes it work, but I'm not even sure if this is what he was going for. Yeah, that's uh, hurt. There's, well, there's a Hungarian movie called Control by Nimrod yeah. Antal, right? The guy who did Vacancy and Predator. Yes. Um, and it's it's uh, the the one commonality that they have is that it has a subterranean aspect too. Mm-hmm. That's not spoiling anything. Anybody who's seen the trailer pretty much already gets that gist. Right. Um, and control to me at the end, like the whole time I'm watching, I'm going, I'm not sure I buy this. But then at the mm-hmm. end, something dawned on me, like, wait a minute, this is way more metaphorical than I understood. Yes, and I think that's the same. And I think us, I think I think Get Out was allegorical, and I think. Um, uh, us is more metaphorical, and so to to me that to me it's it's useless to even compare it to Get Out because there are so many other more metaphorical horror movies and metaphorical movies in general mm-hmm. um, that I think are better comparisons. And as soon as I as soon as I I was unsure it, when Us ended, I was like, you know what, I I like it. I thought I would like it more, and then when I made the connection, it ah, this is a metaphor, not a you know straight Twilight Zone-ish allegory. There's mm-hmm. more to it, or a different angle to it at the mm-hmm. least. Um, as soon as I started seeing it that way, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot more. Um, yeah, sometimes I sometimes I assume that I know. Well, I think sometimes audiences assume that they know more than the movie, and I tend to lead from a place of the the filmmakers know more than I do, and I just need to <laughs> rat, latch into their mindset to appreciate what they're doing. And I I think I've done it. And if I've done it, mm. then then I actually then I dig it all the more. <laughs> nice. Uh, for me, <clears throat> I totally dug it in a huge way. And uh, interestingly, I, well, just for those who, you know, the two or three people who may have been living under a rock and right. not are familiar with the story, uh, essentially, it is a doppelganger story. And that's not giving away anything. I mm-hmm. mean, the very title, Us, the posters say, Watch Yourself, which I think is very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the commercials and the TV and the trailers, at you know, the very end when you see the close-up of both families, if you will. And it says, uh, who are they? It's us. Duh. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a doppelganger story. And that's not a new topic any more than time travel is a new topic in a genre film or um or the crazed killer, or the split personality, or whatever. You know, what makes it fascinating to me is how Jordan Peele carries it off. Um, I love the fact that he... Well, first of all, the comparisons that get out, I don't want to address because I think they're ridiculous. Yes. Uh, the only thing I will say is something that he said, where he said after he did get out, there was a lot of talk, a lot of controversy, if you will, about, is it a horror film? Mm-hmm. And he understood where that came from. And I heard people saying, no, it is, and people saying, no, it isn't. Uh, to me, it was because I think horror is something that takes reality and just exaggerates it slightly this way or the other. And the most effective comedy does that too. So in a certain degree, it was it's like it was, it was satire, and it was horror. But then again, so was Rosemary's Baby. Right, right. And so was The Stepford Wives, which is a film that he cited as being somewhat inspirational uh, as far as the tone of Get Out. This time around, though, he said he wanted to just do a straight-up uh, th- throw-your-soda-in-the-air horror movie. So there was no pretensions as to what he was after. Now, the neat thing is, while he did that, I thought he did so many other things with so many other levels at the same time. Uh, there's what you said. Uh, there's that wonderful metaphor about you know life in America right now. Uh, there's also, I mean, I am just a sucker for the light and dark sides of people's personalities. Any story that does that, you know, um, I mean, whether it's 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, whether it's Star Trek Nemesis, which most people dislike, but I like just because of that, the dark and light side of Picard. You know, if my life had gone this way, would I be much different than this alternate me? You know, it's kind of like, um, I think within all of us, you have Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. (laughs) You have (laughs) Cochise and you have Geronimo. Mm -hmm. You know, you have uh, somebody who will be the peacemaker and somebody who will just fry your ass if you look at him the wrong way. And I think there's this wonderful thing that we all do and the best genre films do and the best doppelganger films do and stories of, um, you know, had I had a slightly different path, would I be like my alternate self? Even Indiana Jones and Belloc, you know? Yeah. Or The Shadow and Shuan Khan or Superman and Bizarro. You know, so basically this is doing that same kind of thing, but it's doing it in a very contemporary manner, and I just thought it was brilliant. If I do have any minor quibbles, and they are minor quibbles, and I mentioned this in the review I did uh, on the Vaulted Treasure blog, I think the first half works a little better than the second half until we get to the very end. And the very end just totally puts everything into a wonderful light, which I, I, I was like, it's like, whoa, nice. Um, but the first half I thought works better, a little better than the second half because we know a little less. And I think that... Um, I use the example of Steven Spielberg's duel where there were some versions of the film where you see inside the cab and you see, you don't see the truck driver's face, but you see an arm shifting the gear. You see uh, the leg hitting the accelerator, etc. But in the original TV versions, you never saw inside the cab. So you didn't know whether or not it was some crazed guy who was just trying to flatten Dennis, Ho- uh, Dennis Hopper, Dennis Weaver <laughs> on the highway, or whether it was some more supernatural kind of killdozer or, or, or trucks kind of scenario where something had possessed his vehicle for whatever reason and was after this guy for whatever reason. Uh, that usually works better for me because whatever the audience can conjure up in their mind will be infinitely more wild, wacky, way out and scary than anything the filmmaker can show us. Uh, however, a movie like Jaws, which Steven Spielberg also did, is kind of two different films. The first half is a horror film. The second half is an adventure thriller. And they both work like gangbusters. So I thought when Jordan Peele started to explain what was going on, it started to lose some of the tension for me. Because I was kind of enjoying going through my own mental shell game. Uh, are these people some kind of spiritual or supernatural thing? Are they some kind of uh, clone kind of thing? Are they kind of like in the story, like The Haunting, at least the original novel, are they projections of something from the subconscious of a family member or family members into the physical world? I found that fascinating. And then when he started going down a specific path and explaining this is what's going on, there were still many questions raised, and I, and, and I thought the movie still pulled it off well. But I just thought that that first half really creeped me out a little more than the second half did. But like I said, that's a minor quibble. But uh, all in all, uh, yeah, serious. Um, uh, yeah, I seriously dug it big time. Where were you born? Huntsville, Alabama, but technically I don't remember that part. Name your first pet. Mr. Snoofers. Mr. Snoofers. That's what I said. Did I pass? Not yet. First job? Soldier. Straight out of high school. Left the ranks of full bird colonel. Then? Spy. Where? It was the Cold War. We were everywhere. Uh, Belfast, Bucharest, Belgrade, Budapest. I like the bees. I can make them ride. Now? Been riding the desk for the past six years, trying to figure out where our future enemies are coming from. Never occurred to me they would be coming from above. Name a detail so bizarre a scroll could never fabricate it. A toast is cut diagonally, I can't eat it. You didn't need that, did you? No, no I didn't, but I enjoyed it. Okay, your turn. Prove you're not a scroll. Jumping into Captain Marvel. Uh, Okay, first of all, yes, I dug it. However, (laughs) okay, and I've actually been working on a piece about it, and it got a bit more complex than I had intended. Uh, As far as the MCU goes, it's a fantastic film. Okay, the problem I have with it, and, oh, man, okay, (laughs) let's try to get this out uh, properly. Um, I think, okay, I've heard people say before that... um, a film, a character, uh, whether it's a female character, a uh, minority character, or whatever, um, shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be a black hero. It shouldn't be a female hero. It should just be a hero who just happens to be. 
Uh, maybe. I personally felt that Alita, as we talked about before, was a strong film because they zeroed in on the personality of a teenager, and that became a large part of the film and the character and where the film was going. So I don't think shying away from that is always a good idea. I sometimes think you can... I mean, a movie like Widows, I thought was much more interesting than a movie like, say, uh, Ocean's 8, True. which essentially was like Clooney and the Boys, you know, um, in skirts, for lack of a better term. You know, whereas Widows, uh, you had these women who, most of whom, almost like in Paul Mazursky's An Unmarried Woman, you have a woman who, to a certain degree has allowed herself to not interface with the real world. And then suddenly when their quote-unquote protective barrier is removed, it's kind of like, oh my God, almost like Thelma and Louise, like, oh my God, I have allowed myself to be blind into what's really going on in this world, and they have to step up. you know. So I think, and then of course Widows has all these layers of socioeconomic stuff going on too. So anyway, Captain Marvel... I think where it fails, uh, as great as it is, is when it tries to be a quote-unquote empowerment film. I think the Captain Marvel character in and of herself is such that, I mean, Wonder Woman didn't try to be that. Wonder Woman just told a damn good story with a damn good character. And just doing that, this is an empowering character. This is an empowering film. This is why the character has been around for, <laughs> I don't want to say almost 100 years, but right. we're, we're kind of we're getting there, you know, Um uh, same thing with the characters in something like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, the uh, um, the Sp- Spider-Gwen character, you know, who was pretty much the strongest of the lot, uh, even next to Peter Parker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's the one that's got her shit together. And I think just, just in that, you have this character. They didn't feel the need, which Captain Marvel does a couple of times, I think to its detriment, to slam on the brakes and preach to the audience. You know, I had a problem with that. There's one point where, you know, Haggis, a little past the halfway point where she finds out exactly what's going on. Memory returns. She finds out exactly who she is. Uh, and, and it's a great moment because the whole idea, anybody who knows the Captain Marvel character knows that she is pretty much the biggest badass in the Marvel universe. Simply uh, things she can do. She can absorb uh, a cosmic power and release it uh, in in, the, in something that would make a nuclear explosion seem like firecrackers. Uh, yeah, she's a powerful character. Uh, I remember one <laughs> early review of the film just said, uh, Thanos was about to get his ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, that's very accurate. I mean, if anyone, uh, even more so than Doctor Strange, will give Thanos a run for his money, it's Captain Marvel. Why in the world do you think Nick Fury sent that message to her at the end of uh, Infinity War? because he knows what she's capable of. And the neat thing is we have this character who's capable of all of that, and for all intents and purposes, she doesn't know who she is through most of the film. She thinks she's simply a quote-unquote human being, or you know, she just thinks she's someone who doesn't have the potential that she has, and then she realizes that it's been there the whole time. I think that is powerful, extremely powerful, but I think the filmmakers had a tendency to underestimate the audience and say we don't think they'll get that so we have to underline it in an almost follow the bouncing ball manner and i think when it does that it's underestimating the audience and it's underestimating the character a little bit but apart from that uh, oh and i thought that the um reason for nick fury's eye patch was serious bullshit (laughs) (laughs) i it's like are you kidding me like nick fury's eye patch is like the coolest thing just like dr doom is the coolest villain in the universe nick fury's eye patch is the coolest thing in the world and if you're going to go into how he got that eye patch uh the reason they give here i'm sorry that's that's serious bs anyway (laughs) i love the film um uh so i I know i just pointed all the bad things but Mm -hmm. it's just because i love the film so much it's kind of like um it's like i love 95 percent of the film i love it so much that five percent just really bothers me but uh, and it's not you know there was a guy he's got a problem no it's it's about <laughs> storytelling you know I think Wonder Woman is a great example of how you can do that I think the Spider Man into the Spider Verse is a great example of how you can do that uh, I think Widows is a great example of how you can do that so no there are great films uh, about empowered women that don't have to slam on the brakes and preach to the audience so anyway um, I see what you're saying there it it didn't I, I don't I don't disagree with it but I guess it also didn't 
way against me as much as it did you. Okay. I mean, basically, I like you say, I, I kind of expected this from Wonder Woman, and when, you know, especially since DC is f- frankly not as well. They don't usually come up as well against Marvel when you can right. stack them up side by side. Okay. So I kind of expect- user friendly, if you will. Right, right, right. So, so I expected it from Wonder Woman. I was didn't really notice the absence of it because, like you say, it was just so caught up in that story. Right um, here. Uh, I just really love the the, the character of of uh, Maria and Monica Rambo, um, mm-hmm. both of them, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and to me that's where the soul of the movie really comes in. That's where any real human interest mm-hmm. comes in is with this you know the, these um, supporting characters who we right. don't really get to spend a lot of time with until right. really the last third, which is an allusion mm-hmm. to um, some of Captain Marvel's history, right? Because right. in the comic books, of course. It's not just one "quote unquote" Captain Marvel. It's almost like a passing of the mantle kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, yeah. And 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 see, here's another. Thing. And here's here's maybe where I I have quibbles, but I also sort of will qualify them because since I've mentioned my expectations with us, I'll say this: that I didn't have any an awful lot of expectations going into this because of of all the Marvel characters that have had a movie so far, Captain Marvel is, to be honest, the one I have the least awareness of. And I know okay. a lot about him, a lot about her. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot. Enough, shall right. I say. Enough to know, yeah, right. you have a, yeah. a working knowledge of the history of the character. Versus, like, Iron Man, I walked in with high expectations and it met him because I loved okay. Iron Man as a kid. I've read a lot of him. It was great. Thor, I walked in and I loved it because I hated Thor as a character. I always thought he was an annoying uh, <laughs> prick in the comics. Right. And But you already know my affection for Kenneth Branagh and, you know, Kenneth Branagh did what Kenneth Branagh does. He takes, right. he takes you know, these regal one-note characters and makes them... Three-dimensional, yeah. Yeah, you know, and then some. Makes them quite worthy of Shakespeare, even though it's a comic. Right. Um, so, so so basically, Captain America... Oh, I'm sorry, Captain uh, Captain Marvel was neither for me. I didn't walk in with lowered or raised expectations. Just kind of okay. come on in, almost with as close to a blank slate as I could have with a Marvel gotcha. movie. Okay. And um, so I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I don't disagree that it was there. It just, for me personally, didn't bother me as much because given all the other characters... That they have, it felt like okay. Well, this one character can can have that. It's about time, maybe. Um, and and maybe I would have expected the same thing if they had ever. I mean, we've been hearing uh, we we're going to have a Natasha Romanoff movie for what eight years now. There mm-hmm, keeps mm-hmm. being rumblings about this, so I guess I sort of expected we would have had it in there too. Mm-hmm. And um, so that part didn't get me. Here's the only thing that does get me: um, she's just too impervious for it to be interesting. Um, okay. And yeah, that yeah. that may and then maybe that's, that's being faithful that's to the and comic. parcel of a, yeah okay right and here's and here's the the thing for me and here and and I guess it might not have bothered me as much if I didn't have something to compare it to for my money still the greatest comic book movie ever made is Christopher Reeve in the first Superman yeah and there you have a character who is similarly similarly uh, impervious but they found a way to still make him able to fail yeah. And I never, there was never a moment here where I was concerned about her failing. Um, she was just, like you say, I mean, everything you just described, yeah, she was all of that. And there was no point where it felt like she was outmatched. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it was fun to watch. Yeah, it's neat to see a, you know, a galaxy class ass whooping. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But it's also not as fun when, like, there's no moment where I'm remotely concerned for you, let alone remotely concerned for anybody that you care about, because I'm certain you're going to rescue them all, at least with Superman. Spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen it in the past <laughs> 40 years. Um, Superman is given this impossible, you know, you got to be in two places 3,500 miles apart right. at the exact it's- same time, or somebody you care about. You're either going to break a promise or you're, someone's going to die. Right. Superman's Sophie's choice. Right, yeah, yeah, basically. And and I guess I needed something like that here, and maybe, hopefully not that. Do some, you know, since we've already seen that, give me a similar, give me... Right, just some kind of personal me. kryptonite. Yes, surprise yeah. me somehow. And I guess that's the part that didn't come. Um, yeah. Is it still fun to watch? Absolutely. Does Hell it yeah. still look cool? Absolutely. Big Am time. I glad to have met her and I can't wait to see her in Avengers Endgame? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's still a very good movie. Uh... I still like it more than any of the introductory Hulk movies. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad she's part of the universe. Um, it's just that whole impervious thing, and I hope we actually, in the next one, in, in Avengers Endgame, we get to see uh, her feel as threatened as everybody. I, I hope we get. I hope we get to be concerned for her safety at some point. You know, yeah. the same as we are for everybody else's. I mean, now we've got half the uh, the universe 
half the Marvel Universe dead or vanished or wherever the hell they are, right? right? We're concerned about all of them. We get to see, as as Stan Lee said, we see Tom Holland uh, uh, vanish as Spider-Man and we see him hang on the longest. And it's, that was, give me something like that. That just, and basically maybe because of that ending of, of Infinity War, so haunted me and so and so haunted you know everybody who seemed to have seen it um i think that raised the bar on peril yeah yeah in a way that i never saw coming from the marvel universe and maybe this is you know in fairness to captain marvel maybe they need to step back a bit so they can build the peril up for the next time but still i just yeah. i would like to see a little more peril and that's about my biggest gripe on, on the whole thing okay and i agree with you about 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 nick fury <laughs> <laughs> okay all right <laughs> Nice. Now, what shall we talk about? So, uh, shimmying into our main topic of discussion, uh, you have to, once again, you have to be living under a rock to not be aware of the. Well, for those who may have been living under a rock, uh, a few weeks ago, <laughs> Steven Spielberg made a comment. I do believe that to a certain degree, his comments were taken out of context and exaggerated just a little bit. But that doesn't mean he didn't say certain things. And this got everyone a buzz. The whole idea of um, he mentioned that um, he felt that Netflix movies should not be um, eligible for Oscar consideration because they are TV movies. I mean, he he has gone on record as saying yeah, he loves TV. Uh, he grew up on TV. He's done a lot of fantastic stuff for pretty much almost every network out there, including Netflix. And he said that he just thinks that, you know, the big screen experience should be divided from the TV experience and that those movies should be nominated for Emmys because they are TV movies. And Netflix came back, you know, with a little, I thought was kind of witty, uh, <laughs> comeback, which was kind of like, ooh, <laughs> But uh, anyway, and then Spielberg said that he would speak to the Academy. He pretty much represents the directors in the Academy and talking about getting the rule changed. So me personally, you know, uh, I I think we're going to be going back and forth in this a bit. I, uh, all in all, I think what we're dealing with here is a modern day version. I think there's a, a serious catch 22. To me, it's almost a modern-day version of... um, I think Spielberg is only emblematic of a certain mindset that a lot of uh, filmmakers have today. And I think that mindset shows a disconnect to a certain degree from actual film-goers. Film always faces some major challenge. Uh, eventually, I mean, TV was a major challenge. Sound was a major challenge, yeah. and everybody had to change. They had to adapt or die. Um, evolution, <laughs> Jurassic Park references, um, and then TV came along and sort of killing drive-ins and everything else. And then the movie industry changed and rebounded. Uh, the big Hollywood spectacle and the studio system collapsed, and these new independent films rose up in its place, and a new golden era was born in the late 60s and early 70s, an era that you and I cling to as probably Hollywood's true golden era, and where a lot of the current-day filmmakers like Spielberg and Paul Schrader and Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas and all rose up to take their place. And now, ironically, to me, ironically, it seems that a lot of those people whose careers were started after one such evolutionary, um, uh, uh, an extinction-level event, if you will, <laughs> you know, they rose up after an Ellie and um, with a new crop. Now there's another Ellie on the horizon, which is streaming. And I think a lot of people are cl- clinging a little too much to the old ways, uh, not unlike how some people are clinging to the coal industry and saying, no, bring back the coal industry, don't let it die. And it's like, it's kind of a little after the fact, I think you have to look for new alternative sources that are cleaner and more efficient. So the thing is, this isn't new. Um, Back in 74, Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage was deemed ineligible uh, for Oscar consideration because it was originally a five-hour miniseries in, in, in Sweden. And it was turned into a two-hour, 48-minute film version for the U.S. And officially, it was deemed ineligible because the original five-hour version aired before in the 
previous year, previous year's consideration, even though the film version that was released in the U.S. did not. It debuted within the allotted nomination time slot. And there were so many people who were upset about this that 24 different directors, including Frank Cap. Capra and Fellini and even the New York Times film critic Vincent Canby and a bunch of others took out, wrote a letter and published it in the New York Times saying how this was ridiculous. And Vincent Canby even said it was the kind of technicality one usually encounters at obscure border stations in Central Asia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know. So fast forward a few years later, 1981, Wolfgang Peterson's Das Boot, which was also originally a a miniseries in Germany and then was edited down to uh, a film received uh, five or six Oscar nominations, uh, including best director, best adapted screenplay, a couple for sound and sound editing and so forth. So fast forward a few more years. So in 1990, uh, the Academy established a rule that said, okay, certain films that, debut on cable or on TV are ineligible. So, you know, some people saw a way around that and uh, decided to release films in theaters beforehand, what some people call a token release, just so that they would qualify for Oscar consideration. Uh, John Landis's Michael Jackson's Thriller was one that opened at a couple of theaters in L.A. and New York uh, before it debuted on MTV, just so that it could be considered for best short film, which it did not score that nomination. And so a lot of people, you know, the whole token release thing. However, uh, British, uh, Britain's Channel 4 pretty much has made a name for themselves because most of their movies, including, uh, I got a list here, um, My Beautiful Lauderette, The Crying Game, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Death and the Maiden, they were all originally conceived as, this was their plan, as TV movies. They would be filmed as TV movies and they would be Release theatrically first, a token release, if you will. And then uh, American Playhouse kind of did the same thing with movies like Longtime Companion, Testament, Stand and Deliver, and The Thin Blue Line. They were originally filmed for PBS, and they received a token theatrical release ahead of time. So it just seems that the ball going back and forth and back and forth, it's almost like, what's the old saying, um, we have a tendency to create God in our own image. Hmm. I think to a certain degree... That's what a lot of people are doing. Uh, we move the ball farther down court when it doesn't exactly suit our personal desire. So that's where I see this whole thing going. Uh, and, and I have a problem with that. Can, can I just throw, throw in one, one other more recent thing for anybody who's you know under 25 or something and maybe thinks this is all ancient history that you're talking about? Another example that everybody should be aware of is Avatar. You know, I mean, there was a shockwave when uh, James Cameron announced that there will be no film prints, that this is only going to be released digitally. And it forced, you know, we talk about, we're still talking about right now with Spielberg and Netflix and Apple TV, and you know, that, that, like, what constitutes a movie, what constitutes TV, what constitutes a studio these days anymore. Um, that, you know, and that's, and, and like you say, direct, I'm glad you mentioned feeling like directors are sometimes out of touch with, the, you know, the rest of the way this works. That showed a... a Maybe not an outer touch with, but at least a schism with uh, the the uh, um, the word I'm looking for not, the not presentation community, but the the um, exhibition community, the, okay. the people who run theaters, right? Right, right. and and yeah. and uh, you know my buddy Peter Flynn who made his movie Dying of the Light about theaters that basically a lot of theaters, a lot of small town mom and pop theaters died. After Avatar, yeah. because they had the choice of uh, of an upgrade, of costing anywhere from a quarter of a million to half a million dollars to be able to project, project digital, mm-hmm. and then yeah, after that first that first digital package that a lot of theaters adapted to for Avatar, within five years that was not obsolete, but but yeah. second class suddenly, right? Within yep. five or six years, versus like if you've got a thirty five millimeter projector from nineteen twenty. Those things are like a Sherman tank; they still yeah. roll, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, there's another schism that doesn't get talked about as much. That you know, the entire way we watch these things has changed, and no one. I, I mean, there may have been a minor burp in in 2009 of somebody saying, "Well, why don't we have best film on actual film and best film digital?" Like, I'm, I'm sure some mm. wing that said that somewhere, and I would not mm-hmm. entirely. I mean, I wouldn't agree with that being a thing, but I would. I, I think it's at least. 
a further part of this discussion that you know what we're calling film these days isn't even on film anymore. Right, right. Um, so yeah, I'm just saying for for anybody out there under thirty who thinks everything Craig just mentioned is ancient history, and to be honest, mm-hmm. to me, some of it was new. I'm glad you covered all that, <laughs> okay. because as you were talking about Bergman, I was thinking about well, wait a minute, what about Dust Boat? Because that was like that was like a ah. The first foreign film that ever really roped me into being able to like, okay, now I'll watch subtitles because this is right. cool, exactly. Right? And and I and I didn't know that 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 was a direct beneficiary of the, the of what Bergman had gone through. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that it's ever changing, and and that you know really this is just one more hiccup along the way. But now we have greater immediate media response outlets for people to say Spielberg's a hypocrite or right. whatever. Right. So. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, to me, one of the more interesting comments that I, I mean, I know there was like a tweet storm over all this, and, mm-hmm. and there were a few people that basically said, "Can't we all just get along?" <laughs> <laughs> and in the long run, I think they're, they're going to be the ones that win, um, probably because this just has you know somebody just has to sit down and clarify the rules for another decade, right? Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I looked into this a little bit too. Um, my understanding was there was a period where you had to play for. One week in Los Angeles and one week in New York, um, and then it became one month in either. And it feels like every decade or so they change the amount, right. the duration, and the location for the right. theatrical run. So it's been done before. Do yes. it again. Just right. figure out yeah. what fits for the next, you know, decade or so, and don't think you're carving it in stone. You're just, you know, it's it's not it's not the Ten Commandments. It's the Constitution. It can be amended. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. Right. 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 So that's a perfect way of putting it. Sandman number 19, based on Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, was the first comic to win a World Fantasy Award. Not in a special comic book category, but as best short story. Previous awards had gone to noted authors like Harlan Ellison and Jorge Luis Borges. Some on the committee felt that a comic book didn't belong in such company. We got the award on the Saturday night. On the Sunday morning, um, they changed the rules to make sure it could never happen again. It was more than closing the stable door after the horse had gone. It was more like closing the stable door after the horse had gotten out and won the Kentucky Derby. are the nominees for achievement in directing. Spike Lee, Black Klansman. Pavel Pavlikovsky, Cold War. Yorgos Lanthimos, The Favorite. Alfonso Cuaron, Roma. Adam McKay, Vice. And the Oscar goes to, in this name I can't pronounce, Alfonso Cuaron. It reminded me of, um, I remember watching an interview with Neil Gaiman, whom everyone loves now, you know, and deservedly so. But I remember back in 1991 when he was working on the uh, Sandman uh, comic book series. Back in 91, he won the World Fantasy, uh, an issue, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is patterned after the Shakespeare thing. Uh, It won the 1991 World Fantasy Award for short fiction. And... Not comic book fiction. I don't think the topic, the category existed back then, but for short fiction up against other quote unquote legit short stories. So he won the award. And as he said that the very next day, the World Fantasy uh, Award Commission changed the rules so that it, that would never happen again. <laughs> yeah. He just said that no comic book um, story could win, you know, for short fiction. So to me, it's almost along those lines. It's almost like, okay, how he put it, they didn't just close the barn door after the cow came back. They closed the barn door after the cow went around, won all these awards, came back (laughs) as a hero, you know, and then closed the door. Uh, (laughs) And I think, to me, that's where, I don't want to say snobbery, because that's too strong a term, but I think misunderstanding or disconnect is a good way to put it, Mm -hmm. where um, I think, to me, I agree that 
the film ex- experience cannot be duplicated. I mean, I'm the kind of person who, growing up, I would go miles out of my way to see a film that was in Dolby stereo when I could have gone around the corner to a local theater and seen it when it wasn't in stereo. Or to this day, I will opt to see an IMAX film and pay a little extra uh, to see it in IMAX 3D than to not see it in IMAX 3D. You know, so I'm one of those kind of people. Uh, hmm. I totally think that sound is half the film, duh. Yes. And yeah. that um, there are times you're sitting in the movies. I distinctly remember watching The Empire Strikes Back in this huge theater in Philadelphia, this show palace, and feeling as though the TIE fighters were zooming through the theater at different angles. It just sound was so incredible. So, yes, I don't care how great your 4K home theater is. There's nothing like seeing a film in the movies where the hundreds of screaming people who are all laughing and jumping in the same place, whether it's Jaws or whether it's us, you know, being in an mm-hmm. audience uh, in a film, it, it can't be duplicated. So, yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. But more than anything, I just want the damn film to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of this um, making something ineligible is going to backfire. Uh, for example... There's a piece, and I'll uh, post the link in the um, on our uh, uh, movie sneak page. There was an article in um, IndieWire, I think it was. I actually have it. Yeah, IndieWire, a couple of weeks ago, about how uh, Annapurna lost between seven and twenty million dollars each on if Bill Street could talk, Vice, and Destroyer, all of which were you know critically acclaimed films, but of which no one went to see. Mm-hmm. You know, and then a little over a year ago, uh, Paramount's um, Mother, Downsizing, and Suburbicon all kind of suffered the same fate. You know, now these are the kind of films people say we want to see more of. Um, Netflix came under fire by some people when they decided to hedge their bets and release Annihilation um, theatrically only in the U.S. and then on Netflix in other countries and they were accused of saying oh you don't believe in the film blah 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 blah." but the story there was that um the film at advanced screenings a lot of audiences scratched their heads and just didn't get it so they could have allowed the director to remain faithful to his vision and not chop the film up you know uh and try to make it quote unquote more commercially friendly or they could have released it as is but try to hedge their bets and not lose their shirt on it. So I thought what they did was a fair enough compromise um, to not lose their shirt, but to allow the film to be seen. I think people have a tendency to forget that the second part of show business is business. Yeah. And that if we want more of these smaller, more intimate films, I mean, people... On one extreme, you had people complaining about Black Panther saying, oh, it's a big studio film. It doesn't deserve. It's a comic book movie. It doesn't deserve to be nominated for Best Picture, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then on the other hand, a lot of these same people are saying the Netflix films, which are kind of like moving in and taking up the slack um, of the independent films that people aren't just going to see. People say the big Hollywood films, the Marvel films are pushing everybody out of the multiplexes. Not entirely true, because a lot of the smaller films are being run in a lot of popular art houses. The only problem there is if you don't live in a major city like Philly, New York, Boston, whatever, uh, you're going to have a harder time getting to an art house theater, at least with any number of screens, to see some of these more obscure films. So sometimes the only way that people who are genuinely interested in seeing a nice original smaller scale scale, uh, scale film is to see it on somewhere like Netflix because they're releasing it. They they'll buy the rights to you know for a certain amount of money and release it, and then people will see it, and then they will demand more of this kind of film, and then hopefully that filmmaker or those filmmakers will be able to make more of those films. I mean, the thing is, they just need to be seen. But it's like the people who are complaining about it are people who already have access to see these films whenever they want to. Uh, a lot of them, critics and 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 and, and journalists, they see these damn movies for free. Anyway, right. you know, so Months they, be- a month before we get to also exactly. <laughs> so they really there's a real disconnect here where they're saying this is how we see it. Well, yeah, I understand that's how you see it, but the average film goer, I mean, come on now, you're not going to see these independent films on um, IFC or Sundance anymore because they're doing their you know marathons of um, 
you know, diehard movies. IFC has been showing diehard movies, exactly. which I'm, I'm glad to see it. Diehard still... movies and marathons <laughs> of Arrested Development. You yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, Netflix is one of the few. Amazon Prime now, you know, that's another outlet. But again, it gets to the point of um, this is where these films are being seen now, and that's great. They're being seen. But it almost to me seems like a a personal, like I said, borderline, get off my lawn and let's bring back the coal industry kind of attitude towards the next step in cinematic evolution. And I think for people to not see that, is uh indicates a disconnect from the actual film going audience. Uh I mean the the academy tried a bunch of lame brain ideas over the past year, you know, the best popular category, the we're not going to present the quote unquote minor technical categories some of them uh during the broadcast and they tried everything they can to try to turn the tide of falling ratings. But the truth is even sporting events, uh, even Grammys and sporting events, the ratings are down on, on those too. Even the freaking Super Bowl, <laughs> the ratings are lower on average the past few years than they have been the, the 10 years prior. And that's just because of technology nowadays. It's just because people have more options to stream and their noses are buried in their smart smartphones and laptops and, and, and tablets. And they're not as hooked and reliant upon the TV or the film screen as maybe they were just 10 years ago. So I think the film industry has to acknowledge that in order to grow and survive just as they had to change when sound came and then color and then TV um, on and on and on every few years. There's just a a new evolutionary uh, event that happens and you have to change or die. Let me make a quick prediction on yeah, what the please. next evolutionary change might be, because I think I read the same IndieWire article as you did, and if, I, if I'm thinking of the same one, there was some unnamed source who made some comment, which I vehemently disagree with, about how difficult it is to make a, an independent movie these days. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. If you've seen Tangerine, which is a damn good indie-to-the-bone movie, mm-hmm. they shot that damn thing on an iPhone 5. Yeah. Uh-huh. We're up to the 10 now. They made that on a 5, <laughs> right? All you need is some good characters, some good actors, two rooms. Yeah. Right? You know, um, your catering budget can be entirely on the damn screen. It could be a movie about a dinner. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> right? In fact, we've already had that one. Mm-hmm. For anybody under 25, go back and look for it. It's yes. out there. Wallace Shawn is your hint. <laughs> cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, so here's the thing. Um, and I've just started noticing this in the past few years especially you, you know I live in Boston and, uh, and my favorite theater is my, my most the theater I go to most probably is there's an AMC theater uh, right across the street from Boston Common and a couple of blocks from Chinatown and because it's right there they've been making more of an effort to show at least one uh Chinese movie at all times. It's a it's a 19 screen theater. They have at least one screen and sometimes two or three showing, if not Chinese, then Korean or not as many Japanese for some reason. I'm a little bummed about that, but a, a fair amount of Korean and a lot of Chinese and Taiwanese movies in there. And uh, I, I talked to you about the Wandering Earth uh, a couple yes. of weeks ago, uh-huh. which I loved, and, and I was so glad I got to see it. Not just in a theater, in the IMAX they showed yeah. that. Yeah, right. And um, and so one, I think some of our you know big behemoth chains might respond to and and these these shows are packed on a monday night right because it's where else can folks who live in chinatown see mainstream chinese movies Movies. and imax no less everybody turns out right and um so one there's that i think i think um i'm glad we have fathom events that sometimes does these one or two night screenings you know of things that might not otherwise get a full week run um, and above and beyond that, I've talked to you in the past about my favorite bar in Boston, also in Chinatown, a place called Shoujo that has, instead of like every, every sports bar in Boston has like 94 <laughs> TVs all showing the Sox and the Bruins and whatever. Shoujo has one TV and they're showing Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies. They're showing recent, you know, um, uh, Korean horror, Japanese horror, Hong Kong martial arts movies, Japanese martial arts movies. And... You know, a lot of times they just have the movie on in the background. But anytime I ask them, hey, you know what? Can you actually put the subtitles on that? Because I'm here alone. I'm going to have a drink. And I'm going to have another drink. And I might have a third one. Right. Watch this whole movie. Because this is cool. Uh-huh. And there's nowhere else I'm going to see this. And I think, here's my prediction. <clears throat> Not only is it easier to make movies these days, I think, than ever. I think it's also easier to exhibit. And, Big time. And I think that, I think that 
people still want that sort of communal experience, even if it's just a few dozen of us in a bar. Um, I've been surprised lately by some of the... You know, every summer in some bigger towns... Um, I used to see this in L.A. I know it happens in New York. Uh, it definitely happens in Boston. Tell me if it happens in Philly, too, where you have somebody sets up a screen in a park. Oh, God, absolutely, yeah. Right? In and fact, sometimes... Yes, uh, yes. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's like the local library doing it. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's the local this club or that club that, that arranges it. And what I've started noticing, at least in Boston, and actually from L.A., too, with Cinespia, they're not just showing, you know, the big, easy draws. Some of them are... Like, I'm surprised by some of the titles. Yeah. And, and in a good way. And sometimes it is a family thing, but it's an obscure family thing that, you know, that kind of tanked at the box office, but here's another chance to see it outdoors with your friends. Um, and sometimes it's just a classic old movie that isn't part of the pantheon of classic old movies. You know, just a movie that hasn't, you know, detour seems to keep popping up. And I love that that happens. Um, uh, so so my, my prediction is that in the very near future, Places like Shoujo will become more and more the norm. There's a few breweries I, I know think so that too. show movie nights where 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 it won't. And and I'm sure the you know the 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 Oscars or whatever other governing body of whatever other awards is probably not going to accept a theatrical run in a brewery mm-hmm. <laughs> as as uh, as award qualification. And at that point, awards will start to become less relevant. Less relevant. And yeah. and who knows if maybe you know local critic awards might become more relevant if if you know the Boston local papers or the Philly local papers can start saying you know this movie showed for an entire weekend in this brewery this movie showed for a, a like two shows in a library right and some of these movies that didn't get a theatrical release but are on Hulu or on you know or somebody who just made a movie and put it on YouTube and and it started to garner a following Right, and then maybe one of these one of these smaller public spaces contacts that filmmaker and says, "Hey, can I show your movie and actually promote it as, you know, my location is showing your movie?" And you know, God forbid, with this day and age, I mean, how are you and I doing the show right now by Skype? Right, like they could Skype in the filmmaker right after and have a Q and A. I mean, a, a room big enough to be like a library uh, uh, quiet room. Whatever you can pull the tables to the side, line up the chairs, and and you could meet a director from two thousand miles away. Yeah, and I, I, I think mean, hell, this is, we actually I think I mentioned before how I actually did a similar thing like that at a at a school here yes, at, did. in Philly yeah. with uh, David Mickey Evans. You know, the, uh, and we, uh, we talked about um, uh, the Sandlot. And the teacher had the, stu- the students watch the film about a week in advance, and many of them have seen it before anyway. And we did that. I went in, and David was piped in via Skype, and he interacted with the with the kids. And they asked him questions about the, the film itself and about his life and, and and just about things in general. So, yeah, I and he, he said, I'd be more than happy to do something like that again in, in the future. Just let me know. I think, yes, you're right. I think that kind of thing is going to become more the norm. And personally, I'm happy with that. That's you Yeah, know, yeah, me too. Uh, I think yeah. an important thing to remember, and this just dawned on me a few days ago, just this phrase came to mind. Uh, like you said, maybe over over the next few years, award shows will become less, you know, um, what, what was the phrase you used? Less. Um, I think I said relevant. Oh, yeah. Thank I'm you. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's perfect. Because okay. I think um, I think some people are forgetting that it's called the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not necessarily the Academy of Theatrical uh, Arts and Sciences or theatrical distribute distributed arts and sciences but mm-hmm, motion mm-hmm. picture arts and sciences and yeah i know you could say well tv movies are motion pictures and music videos are motion pictures yeah but you know what we're talking about so, <laughs> yeah, you know, so cut the shit you know you know yeah so it's the academy of motion picture arts and sciences and oh and one more thing i'll say real quick uh, uh, before, before we sign off an interesting little tidbit i totally forgot about remember the movie the last seduction yeah and that's another example of something that um Linda Fiorentino, everybody praised her performance and said, yes, she's a shoe in for an Oscar nomination. And then she was not nominated because uh, the film had aired on HBO three months before it debuted theatrically at some theaters in New York and Los Angeles. And there was a big brouhaha about that. Now, interestingly, uh, the distributors, ITC and October Films, sued the Academy and they didn't win. It didn't go anywhere. The Academy still stood by their decision. You know, maybe it was... In that particular instance, the right decision, I don't know, right is a relative thing, but how they 
word of their suit I thought was fascinating. They said that the original intent was theatrical. Now, anybody can say, well, the original intent was theatrical. But more specifically, when everyone was hired for the film, the cast and everything, it was all SAG union approved as a theatrical film. So it started life as a theatrical film. That was always the intent when the producers went. Now, some people said the, uh, the producers just didn't believe in the film. So when HBO made them the offer, they took the money and run. The distributors say, well, we took the film to, I mean, I mean the producers said we took the film to a number of distributors and none of them wanted to pony up for the prints and the ads and all that sort of thing. So we were left with no option but to go to HBO when they made the offer. So interestingly, the whole original intent thing, I think depending on now, this is a whole another can of worms that the unions would have to deal with, you know, as far as the original deal with SAG or the Directors Guild or the Writers Guild, that sort of thing, you know. But if that were to be relevant, then you have to question all of those Channel 4 films and all of those American Playhouse films like mm-hmm. My Beautiful Lauderette and, and, and Testament and all those and Thin Thin Blue Line, you know, where the original intent was for them to be TV movies. <laughs> so, but they were eligible for Oscar consideration. So there is a back and forth and back and forth, and there's a long uh, rabbit hole down which you can plunge in, in this discussion. But I do think the one thing that we certainly, I, I guess if there's one thing we can take away from this, is that the industry is changing. Uh, the method of, uh, the way that we see films is changing. The way that films are made is changing. And I, and correct me if I'm, I don't want to speak for you, but, um, and that, um, the industry as a whole needs to recognize the change or a certain aspect of that industry may become irrelevant in the future. I, I, I agree. And it, yeah, you do speak for me there. And also, I think um, I'll just add that the industry should tweet less and whine whine less about this when they're the ones that are kind of driving it to begin with. Yeah, kind of, um, very much so. You know, I mean, I mean, Cameron changed the, the exhibition game by making everybody get digital, and now digital is affordable enough that, like I say, breweries and libraries, yeah, and you know, Bob with the big backyard, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, like I actually, I'm a, there's a few. I have a few different Facebook <laughs> friends who's who do screenings scheduled, programmed curated screenings in their yard during the summer there you go and it's a thing like the, the, and the, you know these are these are people in small towns mm-hmm. um and if sometimes they get a you know a dozen people and sometimes they have several dozen people in their yard mm-hmm. um so i mean the the larger industry has driven this change um and now the change may be outrunning them and i'll pull out the relevance word again if they want to continue to be relevant um they need to. They, I guess they just need to acknowledge the the genie that they've unleashed. Right, right, exactly. The genie's all that out of the bottle. It's more in the hands of. I mean, if you and I really, really wanted to, we could make a damn movie tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. If we wanted to, you know, set aside right. every the other responsibility we have, we could have it up and uh, running and people seeing it within a week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and uh, and that is that is part and parcel of decisions that the the larger industry has made, and not just the production industry or the presentation industry but also like we say apple and and uh with not just apple with the streaming service but apple with the iphone and putting a damn camera on it that now photojournalists are even using too yeah so you know the several several and then so yeah it's 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 to reduce this to just the academy or just the larger studios or just the streaming services right i'm glad you brought up the unions there there are multiple facets to this and and if you're not acknowledging all of them you're going to keep being surprised and wonder how the hell we got here yes yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, i agree yeah cool yeah. yeah definitely as a good chat i think we definitely um i think well clarified some things for ourselves and hopefully uh <laughs> this clarified uh hacked down some weeds and made at least a little bit of a pathway that some people who are listening could travel down and uh you know look at things from a new perspective as well cool and if we're totally wrong on something, I hope somebody will actually chime in on the on the yeah. Uh, please do. If you sneak website, tell us where we're wrong. Cite us, especially if you got another article that led you to think something totally different. So show us that article. Maybe we haven't read it. Please you know, do. And, uh, or if you just have your own well-defined thoughts, fire away. Please. 
the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the organization that puts together the Oscars, has received a letter from the Department of Justice from DOJ Chief Macon Delrahim warning that if there are changes to the rules about which films are eligible for Oscars, that that could raise antitrust concerns. What they're referring to here is that there were reports that Steven Spielberg was looking to limit the eligibility of movies from the likes of Netflix and Amazon if they were offered in theaters too soon to when they were offered um, uh, online and saying that if the window around the theatrical release was not significant enough that they should maybe limit whether Netflix should be eligible for Oscars. The Academy responding, telling us that they've received this letter from the Department of Justice and have responded accordingly, saying the Board of Governors will meet on April 23rd for its annual awards rules meeting where all branches submit possible updates for consideration. Now, this is pretty fascinating to have the DOJ get involved in something like this, but this speaks to the rising power of Netflix, which won a number of Oscars this year for Roma, which is available in theaters and for just a number of weeks before it was also available on streaming, just three weeks later available for streaming. So transformation of the movie industry happening here, and now the DOJ is getting involved. Whoa, anyway, this is a little addendum. Uh, since the time we finished recording our original broadcast material, uh, just a day or so later, lo and behold, a report pops up in Variety magazine and gets picked up by a few other outlets about the Department of Justice weighing in on the whole uh, is Netflix eligible for Oscar consideration thing. Uh, just for those who may not have been aware, uh, back on March 21st, we, we're just finding out about this now, but back on March 21st, uh, Justice Department Antitrust Chief Makan Darahim sent a letter to Academy CEO Don Hudson. And in a nutshell, they, the Justice Department expressed concern that if the Academy tries to go along with this, it just might run afoul of antitrust laws as far as competition is concerned. Now, in the world where you have Disney buying up everything <laughs> and owning their own uh, theatrical, owning their own theaters and even places to put on plays, you would wonder where that would all come from. So uh, there's definitely some more research I know I need to do uh, as far as what constitutes antitrust and what does not. But I kind of think, uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear that myself because it kind of dovetails with what we were chatting about uh, earlier on in, in, in the show. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I agree. I'm glad that they've waited into at least to at least to point out to uh, not just Spielberg, but everybody else that, you know, you, you can't just make this stuff up on the fly. Exactly. There are a lot, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you can you can decide whatever you like, but. Not necessarily that that there are you know the same laws that apply to every other business apply to you too, and really this is the same thing that not that any of us are old enough to remember this, but you know once upon a time well yeah I'm glad you said that about Disney too because you know it was it, it was this is the same thing that caused uh, in the 20s and 30s um, exhibition and production to be divided like every you know the, right. a lot of us in bigger cities still have a paramount theater or a warner theater be, with that name on it or you know a face that or some palace that had been formerly named that where different studios owned a theater in a big city uh yeah. right and 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 for this same reason those all got broken up um so this is, I mean, and I'm a little, I'm, I'm not surprised that we didn't think of this, but I'm a little surprised at the people whose job it is <laughs> to, yeah, to know exactly. this. It didn't occur to them that these two things might have a correlation. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, uh, yeah, like I said, definitely glad to hear that. Yeah. And I guess just to tack on real quick, um, not really a review, but as uh, more proof, ammo, fodder, firepower, whatever you want to call it, uh, just watch the uh, Netflix movie The High Women uh, last night been meaning to get around to it for a while with Kevin Costner and uh, Woody Harrelson. And it's essentially the story of uh, The Hunt for Bonnie and Clyde told from the point of view of the lawman. And this is a movie, while watching it, I mean, I heard a few people say, yeah, I mean, it's okay as far as those kind of movies go, but it's no great shakes, which I disagree with because I don't think it's a movie that has an intention like Public Enemies or Dillinger or something like that to be a rat-tat-tat, shoot-em-up kind of uh, drama. It's more, it reminded me more of a 70s-era kind of film where you take a certain genre and use it to take a look at um, 
contemporary society, kind of like where Arthur Penn's original Bonnie and Clyde, many people feel, was a commentary to a certain degree, at least subtextually, on the 60s era of Vietnam and violence and uh, a lack of trust in the system. Uh, this one directed by John Lee Hancock, whom I've been a big fan of for years, and written by John Fusco, who I've been a big fan of for years, too. It um, kind of takes that story and makes commentary on how both sides of the law nowadays and the government and law enforcement have a tendency to play to and for the media. And uh, almost everything they do is filtered through the media to kind of get the court of public opinion on their side. And I was just kind of fascinated. It's not really an action movie. It's got some great action sequences, but it's not really an action movie as much as it is kind of a rumination on certain things. And I was watching it saying, you know, if this was in the movies... Uh, and it's beautifully shot by John Schwartzman, who did The Rock and Benny and June and some other films, and scored by Thomas Newman, you know, oh, nice. from The Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. and uh, Road Trip Edition, and great production design, fantastic performances all around. I'm watching this, and just the way it's shot and the way it's executed, you kind of forget that you're watching it not on a big screen. And I was thinking, if this was in the movies, this would probably be nominated for a number of Oscars. Wow. Uh, cinematography, maybe even the screenplay. It, it, it's a low-key movie. It's not a big-in-your-face movie, but it's a very low-key movie that if you saw at an art house theater, you'd probably say, yeah, that's got a lot going for it. Uh, Hollywood needs to make more intelligent, grown-up movies like this. And this is the exact kind of movie that we were talking about, where I don't know if this kind of film would fare well at the box office because it's so low-key. I'm I'm glad it gets your endorsement because I was very intrigued about it, but uh, uh, and also surprisingly enough, my AMC theater that I mentioned up the street that has this relationship with the Chinatown next door and shows mm-hmm. movies that don't show in most other you know even in major markets, they did show that movie for one week. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. uh, but and not even full shows. I think it was like two or three shows a day, and mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to get to it. And I didn't, you know, when a movie opens only showing two or three times a day, you know, it's not going to last more than till the next right. Thursday. And I just, I just wasn't able to make it happen. But I, I, I you know, so here to, to, to bolster your point about uh, about uh, this thing being eligible for Oscars, does that count? Would that count? Probably not under the current rules, but you know. Uh, it, it played in a major market, so it may have played also played in New York and L.A. for, for the yeah. one week, and therefore it might be eligible, even though many people may have never heard of it. Well, Netflix did the same thing uh, just last month with uh, Triple Frontier. Yes. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the film with Ben Affleck yeah. and, and, and uh, Oscar Isaac. And that played, I mean, I remember even while it was on, when it debuted on Netflix, I remember watching it the night it debuted, and it was still playing at a theater in Philadelphia. Also and missed a, that, a, and I wanted to see that a, here, too. An art house theater, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, they, um, and admittedly, yeah, it is, for all intents and purposes, a token distribution. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess the big question is, is that right or is that wrong? Um, I think that's just pretty much Netflix and other people. Like we said before, this isn't new. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's um, basically Netflix uh, responding to what we were talking about before, the goalposts constantly being changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, this story is obviously one that says to be continued, but uh, we just thought we'd tack in that little update uh, that we got a day or two after finishing our primary recording. So uh, once again, thanks for chiming in, Jim. <laughs> Thank you. Thank This is good stuff. And they'll probably undercut us again in the next 48 hours. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> so uh, until the next time. I'm Craig Jamison from Gold Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney from TheLunchMovie.com. And thanks for joining us at the Movie Sneak. See you next time up there in those cheap seats. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only. 